John Hodgson is the deputy director of the John Ryle. No, probably probably we need to back up from that, right? Associate director. Associate director. For curatorial practices at the University of Manchester Library. And that includes the John Rylands Library. So there is a long history uh, behind this institution. It was founded as an independent library by Enriqueta Rylands in the 1890s to memorialise her husband, John. It's called the John Rylands Library, but in fact, he had nothing whatsoever to do with it, apart from making a vast fortune out of the cotton industry. And his third wife and widow, Enriqueta, decided to use some of that fortune, two and a half million pounds she inherited. One of the richest women in the, in the country yes, at that point. Yes, I think at the point where she inherited, she may have been um, Britain's richest woman, in fact. And having no children, she could more or less spend the money however she chose. And she had this brilliant idea of establishing an independent memorial library called the John Rylands Library. She could have you know, invested in the public library. Manchester already had a very important civic library, one of the first civic libraries in Britain. Uh, or she could have invested in the university library, Owens College as it was called then. But instead, she decided to create her own institution from scratch and altogether she invested about a million pounds in this building and its collections so she spent a quarter of a million pounds on the building itself right. huge fortune neo-gothic neo-gothic it's like yeah a, it's like a cathedral it is people a often, cathedral. yeah yeah it is it is a cathedral to learning and People often um, make the mistake of thinking it was originally a church right. converted into a library, but but no, it was a purpose-built library in that neo-Gothic style. And uh, lots of interesting theories as to why she chose the Gothic. I think one reason was that she was deliberately trying to emulate the historic libraries of Oxford and Cambridge. Yeah. She was creating for Manchester a piece of instant culture. So what had taken Oxford and Cambridge centuries to create, Enriqueta replicated and in fact exceeded within the space of a decade during the 1890s. So the Gothic made the library look older than it really was. There yeah. were also some comments when the library opened in 1900 that the beautiful pink sandstone would very quickly discolour because of Manchester's polluted atmosphere. And it did, of course, within a decade, it, it had already um, darkened. But I actually think that helped Enriqueta's um, purpose. It fulfilled her purpose because, again, the library looked as if it had been around for centuries, whereas actually it was a brand new institution. Okay. So she was creating a library for Manchester parallel to those great libraries of Oxford and Cambridge. Kind of nouveau riche, it sounds a little bit. She like. was, uh, yeah, she was nouveau riche. So she but, was... But even the whole idea of uh, was catching up to yeah. the, the, the legitimate historical... Manchester was a bit of a, a Johnny-come-lately when it came to culture. It, it had been branded the shock city of the Industrial Revolution, one of the very first industrial cities in the world, in fact. 
and it had a very grim reputation in the first half of the 19th century. Mm. You just need to read the novels of Elizabeth Gaskell to, to get a flavour of how, um, how deprived parts of Manchester were. And it was a get-rich-quick city, and John Ryland's, um, you know, got rich very quickly and mm. got incredibly rich. One of the largest textile manufacturers, in the, if yes. not the largest yes. in, in so the country. So John, John uh, built the family firm from fairly modest beginnings into the largest cotton business in Britain. Um, rather than specialising in a particular aspect of the trade, which most firms did, Rylands and Sons did everything from importing the raw cotton right through to manufacture of um, retail goods and, and the sale of retail goods. They had their own shops. So it was a global business, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's, it's in, in, in economic terms, it's called vertical integration, and it, it became one of Britain's um, biggest businesses. And a, an important fact to note is that, like most Lancashire cotton firms, uh, Rylands and Sons was importing slave-grown cotton from the southern states prior to the Civil War. And that's something that we now acknowledge. Right up front, region. it's like right on the yeah, front absolutely. door, our, pretty well. It, it is. We have a, um, a signboard, a monolith, yeah. uh, just outside our front door, which gives a potted history of the library. And we, we are very transparent about our implication in slavery and um, slave-grown cotton. So it's, it's one look what came of it, thanks to his wife. But yeah. it's not all bad, you no, know. It isn't. Um, I mean, this this is this library is about turning financial capital into cultural capital, and you know we have to acknowledge that some of the profits that John extracted were of um, very dubious origins. But at least Enriqueta did something useful with it rather than simply self-indulge. And useful is an interesting word because she wanted people to... Self-improvement was a big Absolutely, thing, right? utility. This is yeah. all about um, Victorian self-improvement. So Enriqueta herself had very little formal education, we think. Most women in the 19th century had uh, very little formal education. But she had that very strong commitment to self-improvement and self-education. So this library was fulfilling that remit uh -huh. it wasn't aimed at an elite who would you know ordinarily go to public school and maybe oxbridge yeah. this was aimed at um people of, of fairly modest means actually who who wanted to improve themselves uh, and we had a very enlightened librarian at the beginning well i say at the beginning he was librarian from 1900 right through till 1948 this is yeah. henry guppy he was a legendary figure in the history of this library. He shared Enriqueta's vision that this wasn't just to be a scholar's library. Henry Guppy and Enriqueta Ryans wanted this to be a library for everybody who had an interest in self-improvement, in culture, in literature. Well, this is so lovely too. It's like anyone can come here, sign up yeah. and... St and study in these beautiful Absolutely. little alcoves yeah. that yeah. you've got. Yeah, so 120 odd years on, we maintain that tradition of yeah. openness and we still welcome people from all over the world, not only scholars, and you know, we get um, scholars coming to use our collections from North America, Europe, uh, East Asia, 
and, and that's fantastic. But also people just looking at the building, looking at the exhibitions. And we also get people from the local community. It's hugely important to me personally mm. that we don't forget our Mancunian roots. And so we do a lot of work, for example, with local schools, particularly in those parts of Manchester where um, there isn't a high rate of people going on to higher education, a lot of um, social deprivation. So we have uh, an active programme of, um, we call it widening participate, participation, encouraging people to think about staying on, uh, applying to university, and um, again, it comes back to self-improvement, really. So yeah, yeah. that's really at the heart of what we do from Enriqueta's vision in the 1890s right through to the 21st century. And I think it's, it's my passion. And I know a lot of my colleagues share that belief that these are not our collections. These yeah. are collections that we are privileged custodians of on behalf of the whole world, really. Yes. Whether you are... Um, a primary school child in Moss Side in, in Manchester or you are um, a Harvard professor. It doesn't make any difference to us. And I, one of the things I love about this library is that variety of the users. It, 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 it's refreshing that we get those different perspectives all the time. So she built the building and then she went out and got these fantastic collection from Spencer yes. and Crawford. Yeah, the two, the two activities were going on simultaneously. So okay. the library took 10 years to build um, right. throughout the 1890s. Uh, one reason for the, the length of the construction was <laughs> Enriqueta would often change her mind about things. <laughs> I, I don't get the impression she was very good at reading drawings. So it was only once things appeared on site that she decided, oh, I don't like that, take it away oh, or modify it. That must have ticked so off a few people. <laughs> it, 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 it really antagonised the architect, um, Basil Champneys. She had major fallings out with him, with the designer of a stained glass, Charles E. McKent. So it was almost a miracle that it ever got finished. It, as I say, it took 10 years to build, but in some ways, we are the lucky ben beneficiaries of that delay because this was a really interesting period in British history. Mm. There had been an agricultural depression from the 1870s onwards. So many of the aristocratic families had fallen on hard times. They were selling the family silver or in Lord Spencer's case, the family book collection. And Enriqueto was probably uniquely placed to buy these collections in the U in the UK. Many of these collections, of course, were starting to go across to the States. Which is very interesting, isn't it? It's, a, it's a, a, an American model, if you want to call it that. Yes. It's like this is a sort of privately funded institution. Absolutely. Uh, and she's paying big money for the collection. Yeah. Yeah, so we, we sometimes compare ourselves to the great North American libraries um, like the Morgan Library, Folger, Huntington. And interestingly, Enriqueta did spend some of her formative years in New York. Mm. Whether that sort of rubbed off on her and this sort of sowed the seed of the idea that later came to fruition, we, we just don't know. But yeah, we, we are a sort of outpost of North America planted in the north of England, I think. <laughs> yeah, and, and we are sort of unique in the UK as 
a major memorial library. So yeah, it took 10 years to build and during that period Enriqueta was, was acquiring these aristocratic collections. The aristocracy was in decline. Now they had yeah. been, this is the thing though, mm. I mean the libraries depend upon great collectors, it's, at least this one does. Yes. So, uh, so what, what, did they go, what did they go after that was of such interest to her? I could talk all day about uh, Spencer and <laughs> okay. Crawford. So um, the, the Spencer collection was essentially a product of the French Revolution, the Napoleonic Wars, which emptied countless historic libraries in uh, continental Europe and many of those collections found their way to England. Sorry, um, can you just mm. clarify that a bit? What, what are you talking about? Empty? So um, the, the French Revolution, the dissolution of monasteries in uh, France and also you know, across the continent, the disruption created by the uh, Napoleonic Wars led to many uh, monastic and ecclesiastical libraries, but also aristocratic libraries being dispersed. And what, they wanted to sort of sell them and get out of town? Well, uh, there were um, enterprising uh, British uh, dealers who sort of went in the um, footsteps anyone, anyone of come to mind? Napoleon's yeah. army. Yeah. Um, I can't remember anyone off the top of my head, but okay. Christian Jensen has written a, a fascinating book about this entire subject of the that relocation of collections from Europe to England around the turn of the 19th century as a result of the uh, the disruptions that, that were going on and yeah people people were literally going in the footsteps of Napoleon's army uh, knocking on doors buying things at um, bargain basement rates because mm, they were desperate because they were going to flee and yeah, they, yeah, they, they yeah. couldn't carry Absolutely. it with them this happens in many wars. Um, it's not unique to the, the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, so there is sort of moral aspect to all this, yeah. um, albeit it was over 200 years ago. So Lord Spencer, the second Earl Spencer, was one of the great bibliophiles or bibliomaniacs, he called, they called themselves at the beginning of the 19th century. And he put together an outstanding collection of European printing, particularly the early printing from the 15th century, mm -hmm. uh, including the Gutenberg Bible, which we now know came from um, the monastery at Colmar in, um, I think it's near Strasbourg. Yeah, been there. Yeah. Um, we did some multispectral imaging a few years ago on our Gutenberg Bible, and there was an erased inscription which uh, Eric White managed to decipher and so we can now attribute it to Colmar. So that's a perfect example of how um, the riches of these European libraries were being shipped to England and Lord Spencer was, was the beneficiary. <laughs> so coming back to Enriqueta Rylands, the, the Spencer collection comprised about 40,000 books, huge collection. Uh, what she was particularly interested in uh, was the, the Bibles. It was one of the great Bible collections. In, in Britain. And that's, of course, yes, you're, uh, you're renowned for, uh, yeah. for, for what you've got here, Absolutely. so biblical yeah. Yeah. scholars. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yes. So we have a, a room next door to where we're sitting now called the Bible Room, which right. was purpose-built for the, the Bibles from the Spencer collection particularly. 
So you've got the Gospel of John. Uh, yes. The so fragment, the, right? frag the so-called fragment of John's Gospel is. Um, we have to be a little bit circumspect here. Um, it's possibly or probably the earliest surviving piece of the New Testament in the world. It's a, a tiny manuscript fragment on papyrus. Now that didn't arrive here until 1920. It wasn't part of the Spencer collection, but yeah, we, we can illustrate the entire history of the Bible from, well, actually the second century BC. We have some fragments of Deuteronomy from the second century BC right through to the 21st century. And it's an area that we continue to collect in. Yeah, I guess you build on your strength. Absolutely. We build on our strengths, but also we're filling gaps in terms of collecting, it's something that I feel passionately about, that uh, we have to keep the collection mm. current. Yeah. We have to reflect current society and culture. So we we do collect uh, incunables, 15th century printed books. Occasionally, we may even collect a medieval manuscript. But by and large, we're focusing on recent and contemporary literature, uh, social history, uh, so a recent initiative, for example, has been the British Pop Archive. And we've collected a number of major archives that uh, document Manchester's role, particularly in the pop scene from the 1960s onwards. And you're, you're right next next to Liverpool, so it makes perfect sense, I guess. Uh, there's, a, there's a little bit of rivalry between Manchester and Liverpool, right. you may is there, have noticed. Is, is, yeah, it's, but is there a, is there a, a, there's not an equivalent library collecting stuff in Liverpool? Uh, there is, actually. So Liverpool John Moores University uh, down the road um, <laughs> is, is collecting okay. in a similar area, I have to be said. Right. And they have uh, great collections of... Punk, for example, uh, okay. but they uh, they also focus on the Liverpool music scene. So, um, what are we talking about here? Little posters. Um, it's everything. Uh, lyrics. From, uh, we have the lyrics. Ian Curtis's lyrics of um, "Love Will Tear Us Apart," sort of iconic in their own way, just as iconic as the fragments of John's Gospel, mm. um, but more more mundane stuff. So, you know, account books recording royalty payments. We have the archives of factory records and the Hacienda nightclub, um, which was, you know, world famous in the in the 80s. So, yeah, it, it's about documenting that whole scene, which is, you know, hugely important for social history, for cultural history. Students love it. You know, yeah, we use it in yeah. teaching and learning. Way um, more students. interesting than the than the, the the New Testament, for example, to them, well, to them anyway. Um, I'll tell you a little anecdote. Um, I recently had a group of business people over from the States and I was showing them uh, some letters from Charles Dickens to Elizabeth Gaskell. And I asked how many of them had heard of Elizabeth Gaskell. Not one hand went up. <laughs> Jeez. But they were far more interested in the Ian Curtis lyrics. So I think it's a generational thing. Yeah. And, and something that means a lot to me personally may have no resonance. resonance yeah. May have yeah. no resonance whatsoever. It's funny, um, isn't it, though? Here, um, I love Clive James. Yes. So whenever I run yes. into an Australian, yes. young Australian, I say, I, I would be so proud about yeah. it. They don't know who he is. <laughs> no. It's like... <laughs> It's, it's, it's it's a, that's one of your roles, I guess, is to make sure that this stuff doesn't disappear so that, yeah, right? absolutely. And the very fact that we are preserving things here, whether it's historic material or fairly recent, is 
means it's more likely that that memory is going to be preserved. So right. the choices that we make as librarians and archi archivists are hugely important. We're sort of shaping the history of the future, which is a great responsibility. Yeah. Well, the, the, the history of what's going to be researched yeah. or what can be researched. Yes, yes. And, and of course, um, everybody talks now about the sort of digital cliff that we're falling off because it is so hard to capture mm. digital, uh, born digital material these days. We, we, we have an expertise here in email archives. So we have hundreds of thousands of email archives uh, from a, a literary publishing house, Carcanet Press. Yeah, that's um, uh, Manchester based? Yes, it yeah. is. It's Manchester based, but it has an international yeah, reputation yeah. in poetry mm. publishing. The paper archive, which we started to collect in the 1970s, has pretty much stopped now. There's just, yeah. apart from uh, scripts, I think, mm -hmm. um, there's just nothing, no correspondence, certainly, um, in, in paper form. It's all digital. Right. But it's so much harder to preserve that now. And, of course, email itself is, in some senses, being superseded by other platforms. Twitter, or is it What's X, that? Instagram, yeah, yeah. Uh, which are proprietary systems and I wouldn't have the foggiest idea how we could for example capture um, any any Twitter um, traffic or um, WhatsApp conversations that uh, involve Carcanet Press. Yeah but so, if, it, if they're involved in it don't they get to say okay here's this is a, you can get your record from Twitter or whatever it is and then download it and then they can give it to you? Uh, I honestly don't know the answer to that right. question, but I think we are to some extent at the mercy of the tech giants. Um, yeah, because you know, they've got it in the small print somewhere yes, that, yes, that, that it's, yes. it's theirs as well. Yes, and uh, Richard Ovenden from the Bodleian Library has been at the forefront of these conversations around um, the importance of preserving the digital record just mm. as much as the a paper record and it's something that we are actively involved in but it is so much harder to um, preserve the, the digital than it is paper and, and parchment yeah well and it's so interesting isn't it like an increasing amount of our correspondence is like WhatsApp, yeah. I do a lot. Yeah. So it is displacing email, which you kind of figured you've yes. got control over. Yeah, but absolutely. So very it will be very difficult, I think, in 100 years' time for people to research the genesis of um, <clears throat> an early 21st century novel, for example. Right. We have the archive of Elizabeth Gaskell, which includes... Um, manuscripts of several of her novels as well as the life of Charlotte Bronte and you can see on the page yeah. her thought processes being worked out in ink on the paper and her changes of mind you can see the correspondence between Elizabeth Gaskell and um, uh, Charlotte Bronte's father William um, that's all preserved and it's you know, very easy to access I cannot imagine that we're going to be able to do the same yeah. in a hundred years' time for contemporary writers, unfortunately. Yes, yeah, certainly correspondence. It's like yeah. most much of it is now either email, but but also these these platforms yes. that so it's kind of it's spread out all over the place. So the yeah. the author themselves is gonna they're gonna have trouble 
gathering it all together so that they can yes. then Absolutely. sell it to yeah. you or donate yeah. it to you. Yeah, well, uh, again, there's another really interesting um, issue around the value, the financial value mm. Mm. of digital archives. And mm. uh, it's such an, an emerging field, but value... And, is and sorry, and yes, and these bloody great big tech companies who've got lawyers up the ass you absolutely. know are, yeah. are going to make it difficult absolutely yeah um yeah um that's a whole Isn't different thing yeah it is <laughs> so let's move off yeah. uh, and back to really why i'm here to talk to you yeah. and that is you know, all of that we've been talking about tell me what you do in relation to what we've just been talking about then what do you do so um, my role as associate director is um, well I, to be honest i have the easiest job in the world because right. i have brilliant people who it's my job to basically encourage right. do a bit of coordination but they are so dedicated so expert in their fields but but like like what are these different fields then like what you're the you're the motivator let's say so what are the different spikes then points so the activities that we undertake here are around collection development so that's acquiring material which is hugely exciting uh, it, it's it's a real passion of mine i, I think i am a, a born collector but, but we you, have to make do you come decisions. up with the ideas no no i, I don't i mean uh, it's a collective we have a collecting policy so it's not right. just my um, personal preferences. We no. are governed by a collecting policy that everybody's signed up to. So who's everybody? Is it like I mean the curators? Of, so we have um, yeah. uh, we don't have a, a board of governors as no. such, um, but obviously I talk to uh, my boss, the university librarian, all the time about collecting. He is himself a passionate collector, yeah, and will sometimes um, <laughs> set the course of direction. So the British Pop Archive, for example, which um, is, is one of our major current collecting initiatives, was very much Chris's idea um, when he arrived in Manchester four years ago. Yeah, how does, how does your, you know, you're the associate, he's yeah. the director, he's the director of the whole university. Yes, yes. So you're, you're primarily, you're the boss of Rylands. Um, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't call myself a boss of Ryan's. I'm, I'm the most senior person here, and my remit includes the Ryan's Library. Right. Um, so Chris spins so many plates as university right. librarian. Right. We are, um, Manchester is, is, I believe, the biggest single-site university in the UK. University Library is one of the biggest in the UK. So Chris is dealing with issues left, right and centre. A lot of focus is on open access and deals with publishers, for example, um, teaching and learning, etc., which impinge on, on my job, but they're not central to it. So um, my focus is around the special collections and the management of this building and the management of the staff. I should also say that I also manage special collection staff at the main university library. Uh, okay. mm -hmm. And we have a specialist library in Manchester Central Library, the public library called the Ahmed Iqbal Uller Race Centre. So this is a specialist library which does brilliant work um, documenting the lives of global majority communities in Manchester. And there's a specialist library there on issues of race, 
ethnicity, identity, mm. migration. Which is huge. So it's huge, it is. isn't it? Manchester has one of the most diverse populations in Britain, probably the most diverse outside of London. Mm. Um, I think 40% of Manchester's population is of South Asian origin. Um, so it's, it's massively important and increasingly we are aware of the importance of um, equity, diversity and inclusion across our collections. I'm not answering your question. No, no. What, what do I you do? do? So I do. So I collect. Uh, sorry, I oversee collecting. Sometimes right. I have personal involvement, which is great. But it's about collecting with a purpose. So it's about making the material accessible. But, but with a purpose, though, like we talked about uh, working off strength. Yes. Is that the, sort of the key? Is like we're going to have the best uh, collection of Bibles and related religious materials in the world? Is that like my your mission? Um, I, no, I wouldn't put it that way. I think it's about building on existing strengths, but also broadening the collections, collecting in areas where sometimes we haven't collected before. So recent and contemporary culture and society. So keeping the collections uh, current. Like how though? Like what would you, what would you collect? Well, Recent books about we, different religions, for example? Uh, so within special collections, we collect contemporary printing, fine printing, fine so printing, yeah. hand printed material. Yeah, yeah. Um, fine press. Fine press, not just UK presses, but American presses. So. Um, Russell Marriott in New York, yeah, yeah. one of a few libraries that really actively get everything that he produces. Right. Um, we subscribe we, then. Yeah. We do. Yeah. And we have a personal relationship with him. And so those examples of fine printing, but also material of, of more um, humdrum, well, humdrum is perhaps a wrong word, but everyday materials, um, countercultural material. A material that documents ordinary people's lives, photograph, photograph, documentary photography collections, mm. for example, particularly relating to northwest of England. I've mentioned the British Pop Archive, so um, it's not <laughs> just the collections of the musicians, but also the collections of, of that document fandom, fanzines, um, popular magazines, and so on. Another area that we've, we've recently developed uh, and expertise in is humanitarian archives. So these are the archives of individuals and small organizations that respond particularly to emergencies. Like the uh, Red Cross or? Uh, well, not the Red Cross themselves because they have their own very well-established archives. It tends to be the smaller and medium-sized organizations. So <laughs> there are a number in Manchester yeah. that are connected with the university and their records are at risk. Um, because yeah. they tend to be quite small. Their focus is on responding to need, not necessarily preserving records. And in fact, there has been a, a practice of um, humanitarians in the field of destroying their archives simply because, you know, they move from one crisis to another. They can't carry around with them, you know, loads of yeah, photographs yeah. and diaries. So what we're trying to do is intervene with those organisations and emphasise to them the importance of recording what they're doing for posterity. Even though it might shine an unfavourable light maybe on management practices. Well, that's even more important, actually. But to, 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 yeah, to, to shine that light. If um, you can, but I'm saying that maybe they don't want that light shine. I, I think there has been a tendency in the past perhaps to 
not only to destroy material because it, you know, yeah. they can't carry it around with them, but also perhaps to um, conceal evidence. Mm. I'm not suggesting that no, no. for one second for the organisations we work with. No, but still... There it's have been a... some scandals in yeah. the humanitarian world in, in recent years. Right, and Richard Ovenden wrote just very recently on Trump and, and the way that he's been cavalier with documents. I think and you're putting it charitably. This is a topic that's obviously relevant to yes. what you do. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of literature about the power of the archive. It's mm-hmm. something that interests me very much. Um, well, yes, and the thing that's very upsetting is when you find out that archives were willfully uh, destroyed to yeah. preserve the reputations of... In Haiti, for example, yes. Yes. the banking record, the way that they were completely shafted absolutely. by the French, yeah. that's all yeah. been... Dis- it's all disappeared. Yes, absolutely. And, and Richard has, has written about these, these issues very eloquently. But it mm-hmm. is still happening. That's the tragedy. Yeah. In places like Ukraine, yes. people are destroying the evidence of their own crimes. Um, and it makes the work of archivists like me so important that, that we try and get in there and preserve that record before it's too late. So how do you do that? Well, in, in war zones it's very difficult, but I think it's about inculcating that archival awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, Basically, you know, hoping that people involved will, yeah. someone will say, listen, we, should, we really need to yeah. preserve this and get it to an organisation yeah. that'll... And, and one of the um, most powerful chapters in Richard Ovenden's book, Burning the Books, mm. was about the librarian in Sarajevo mm-hmm. who, at huge personal risk, would, would go in and, and organise the, 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 the sort of rescuing. It, it, it's really heroic. Yeah. Interestingly, going back to the, the Rylands and our history, um, Henry Guppy, and I've mentioned Henry Guppy as our legendary first librarian, right. he was instrumental in the rebuilding of the library at uh, Louvain in Belgium, oh, yes. which was destroyed in 1914 by the invading German forces. Wasn't um, it destroyed again? Was it destroyed? Well, that was yeah. the irony. So yeah. Guppy uh, was one of the leading figures in efforts to rebuild that library and, and the Rylands acted as a, a sort of warehouse clearinghouse for the collections that would eventually go back to Louvain to, to restock the library. But tragically, the same thing happened, as you say, again in the Second World War. So they had to start from scratch yeah. a second time. So how does that pertain to your role? I think it just makes me think every day about the importance of what we do, that preserving yeah. of the written record, the digital record now. The truth. And it's for others to interpret, constantly mm. we interpret the truth, as it's as it were, but unless the stuff is preserved in the first Didn't place... It? Yeah, then there's nothing to work on. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I, I think about this all the time, that what we do, I'm not... It's not a self-importance. No, it's actually no. a very humbling experience. But there's a huge responsibility on us to get it right as far as we can, to preserve as much as we can, make it accessible and safeguard it for future generations. That's so important, isn't Absolutely. it? It's just uh, the way we are able to think about ourselves and yeah. uh, get, truth, get to the truth. 
if, and I think as well. Sorry to interrupt, but no. I think as well, we think long term. So we're not just preserving material for the here and now, but we're thinking a hundred years down the line, even beyond that. We have archivists and librarians have a very long time frame, which isn't often shared by policymakers and no. um, even, or, or even, funders. Well, it funders. I mean, yeah. most funders are thinking you know three to five years ahead at mm. most. Yeah. Um, but we need to have that long-term thinking, that long-term priority. So again, how do you like? How do you bring that to the table? Then it's like, okay, you must be tasked with trying to figure out. So what's important for society to be able to investigate and research in the next fifty, hundred years? Like, what what's important and what's not important? Like well, a gatekeeper, arch- almost. We are gatekeepers, and archivists are trained. Particularly, particularly archivists, but, but librarians as well, but archivists are trained to make those appraisal decisions. We don't yeah. try and keep everything. No, you Every can't. archivist has to make selections, and often we're forced to be you know, quite ruthless in um, selecting material, uh, whether that's a business has closed down and you've got two days to go into their premises and choose yeah. what, what to take yeah. away <laughs> or you have a vast archive that you know, is, is completely un- impossible to store in the long term so selecting the 10% of the material that you feel has long term research yeah. value and, and we, we sometimes make mistakes and often we regret the decisions of our predecessors who mm, let yeah. things go um, but the, the nice thing though is that if there's a ton of different libraries going through this thinking that collectively we're going to be okay yeah it it is that thing about you know the collective judgment rather than it falling to any one Mm -hmm. person but sometimes sometimes you're going to yeah you're going to save it and no one else is thinking yeah yeah and um sticking your neck out on the line putting your neck on the line and um making a decision to preserve something perhaps something that you know it doesn't immediately spring to mind as having research value right now but yeah. you have that hunch that in 50 or 100 years time people will be interested in it so give me a few others of your hunches then like you've got pop pop is pretty obvious i guess especially here in this area and you're talking about humanitarian yeah so what what else well one of the areas that we are very active in is what we call co-curation with communities so helping communities local communities in the Manchester area to preserve their records so the uh, the Armadic Balola Race Centre does brilliant engagement work with local communities and encourages them to not simply deposit material with us because sometimes people don't want to do that but Mm -hmm. Preserving memory, perhaps it's through oral history projects, or keeping the records safe within the community uh, until such time as the community makes that decision to to transfer the material over. So it's really valuable work because nobody else is doing it and the experiences of these local communities will be lost if we don't intervene and encourage that memory capture as it were so what's the problem of uh, lost experiences big deal it's the loss of history so if we if we're not capturing for example 
capturing is a loaded term. Mm. If we're not preserving the, the memory of, let's say, first generation um, South Asian migrants into Manchester, mm. then that information is lost to, to future generations and it, it leaves a vacuum into which other people may um, fill it with, with, with disinformation about right. you know, the, the migration problem. We're trying to be, I suppose we're trying to balance that neutral arbiter, but also presenting those positive stories to, to counter um, what can be quite an unpleasant you know, anti-immigrant narrative. So right. celebrating the contributions that uh, immigrants, um, first-generation migrants to Manchester have made and, and their successors, the second and yeah. third generations. Their positive contribution yeah, to so society. That, so that they have something to feel proud of. But also that it shows that it's not, you know, that it's beneficial for the country, for example. Yeah, absolutely. Now, people will interpret the material in different ways and that's entirely down to them. We don't try and yeah. shape um, or um, control how people use the material, but the, the choices we make, and by working with local communities, I think it is more likely that those positive yeah. messages will, will, will be preserved. It's balancing the ledger in a, in a way, I it suppose. It is. That's a really good way of putting it, actually. Yeah. yeah. What else do you do? <laughs> so... Um, so we've talked a lot about collecting. Yeah. Um, we we also obviously you know preserve the material. We have a, an amazing collection care team mm. here in the library whose job it is to make sure that the material isn't deteriorating. They prepare material for exhibition, for loan to other institutions. Um, they do a lot of scientific work on analysing the collections, okay. you know, sampling materials, checking for um, pests and um, mould and that sort of thing, okay. making sure the uh, environmental conditions are right. We also have a very, uh, well, an outstanding digitisation team. We call them our imaging team. So they will do conventional imaging uh, using high resolution cameras, digital cameras, but they will also do all sorts of advanced imaging techniques. So multispectral imaging, which can be very useful for revealing um, hidden text, mm. uh, erasures, underdrawings on artworks. Uh, they do 3D imaging and... They do that and you just administer that? I suppose I have oversight of it and, you know, provide strategic leadership um, I mean we never have enough resources so it's sometimes about um, securing additional resource to help um, the, so these actually going to trying to get fundings funding for fundraising uh, fundraising from uh, individuals from trusts mm. and foundations so you'd actually pick up the phone and do that sometimes yeah yeah, yeah. so um, Often for acquisitions, so if, if we're bidding at auction, for example, yeah. um, we will, I mean, we have a, a generous acquisitions budget, but it's never enough. And so we will um, seek to supplement it with, with external resources. I'm just looking at my phone here because I took a couple of photographs of panels. But one of the things that I noticed is that you're actually looking at the book itself in terms of how it 
how books may have been used. There is a lot of research interest now in the history of particular copies, copy-specific information, materiality of books. Because texts are, particularly printed texts, are available ubiquitously now, the, lot, the scholarship has switched towards looking at um, the lives of specific copies. So, you know, how a book has come down to us through the centuries, looking at traces of provenance. Yes, I was going to say, yeah, and used by their owners. This helps to understand the place of books in society, both in the past yes. and for the yeah. future. Yeah. Uh, and we will actually collect material now, particularly printed books, not so much for the text, but for the marks of ownership. So richly mm -hmm. annotated mm -hmm. books, um, right. books that have um, manicules and marginal uh, inscriptions which show how early readers were engaging with the text. That is an area of, of increasing scholarship and, and we want to support that, um, both through acquisitions but also by improving our catalogues so that researchers can actually find information about annotations. We have a project underway at the moment <laughs> to catalogue our 15th century early printed books in Canabula. Now, now you may ask, well, weren't those catalogued years ago? And they were in a very rudimentary way. But in most cases, our catalogue doesn't record anything about the provenance of those 15th century books, certainly nothing about um, any marginalia, any book plates. So we have a project underway to recatalogue them in much greater detail. Right. So it's, it's essentially to open that collection up to scholarship so that researchers interested in a particular collector, for example, can identify all the copies of a particular book in this library or all the books that, for example, came from um, Count Levitsky's collection, which was one of the, the great collections that Lord Spencer bought at the beginning of the 19th century. Hmm. So, yeah, in order to facilitate that um, copy-specific scholarship, we need to dig into much greater detail in our cataloging. Help people find it more easily. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, yeah. and, and, th and then what? Come here and actually study it? Come here or to study a digital copy. Right. Uh, we also operate now, since COVID, a virtual reading room service. So right. people can actually um, sit in front of a, a laptop and have a dialogue with one of our staff who's actually turning the pages for them real time over Zoom. This is a conversation over Zoom with real-time images. So it's almost as good as being in the reading room, yeah. turning the pages yourself. Very popular, um, particularly for scholars who are um, just not able to reach Manchester, particularly right. from perhaps um, parts of the world where, you know, the, the, the cost of coming to Manchester would be prohibitive. Plus you can get the, if you're having a Zoom conversation and the, the, the other yeah. person actually has the physical copy there, you can sort of look at the digitally, but they say, can you look at the watermark yes. for me? Or yes, can exactly. you we can please see, yeah, yeah. like uh, ask very specific questions yes. and use their eyes. Yeah, and um, our reading room staff love this. I think it took a little bit of getting used to when we first started it, because mm. it, it's a different um, activity for them, but they love the engagement with the researchers. They feel yeah. that they're almost part of a research yeah. process, yeah. rather than simply a passive 
deliverer uh, of material as, as, as often happens in the reading room with physical material you you give it to the reader yeah, and then yeah. the reader sits in glorious isolation that's yes, right you, you get uh, we have no idea what really what, what, yeah. what they're looking at right. and, and what the research process is but this is much more personal yeah. yes and technologies bringing these people together because you yes. use the word connect yes. in your mission statement it's Helping it's, it's what people do. connect to what you've got. It the is collection. the it is the essence of what we do. It's yeah. connecting people with our collection. Yeah. and that's I think the real joy of what we do. Mm. We we're not just collecting and preserving and cataloging no. in a vacuum. It it's in order to make those connections to to bring people to the, the collections, whether that's physically or, or virtually. That's that brings the collections to life. It it's really what 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 drives us. Well, and as you say, more questions are being asked. Yes. Different new questions are being yeah. contemplated and yeah. findings are yeah. coming out of that. And, and yeah. it's, as you and say, it, it's, it's alive. It, it's, it's alive and it's inexhaustible. I think yeah. it was a worry that when once we digitized everything, not that we ever will, you know, the library becomes redundant. People just yeah. look at digital copies. But actually what we found not just here, but elsewhere, is that the existence of digital copies means that people are more interested in the materiality. They want to go beyond the digital copies. Mm. They're fantastic tools, the, the digital images that we are able to deliver online now, but mm. people always want to take it that next stage. And um, it's, it's fascinating to see scholarship develop and we need to be ready to um, facilitate that. So I, I'm not at all worried that we're going to be um, short of anything to do, that you know, people will switch off from the real thing. I think there's, there's always going to be interest in the real thing, whatever that might be. So we talked a lot about collections and, and now research and conservation. Yeah. Does that take up most of your time then, or like what? I mean, then there's just the regular, as you've said, the administration of yes. So a lot of my of time is spent in meetings and, and managing people and managing budgets. I mean, I don't don't want to talk about that. No, that's, that's not, not of any no, no. any interest. But you know, the passion is 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 the collections and the people around the collections. I mean, I often say that you know we have three great assets the building which is is mm. magical the collections which are you know extraordinary but without is it 1.4 million is that it or is that um, old i think we i think that's a um, redundant number now i think we reckon now that we have about six million oh geez where, where did i see that 1.4 was that originally? Um, you may have seen it quoted i mean it depends right. what you define by an item yeah. but the point i want to make is that the building and the collections are nothing without the people whether that's our staff yeah. We have you know, brilliant engagement people who work with visitors, work with curators do, doing exhibitions, work with researchers and students, uh, or it's, it's, it's the people who are actually engaging the visitors, the researchers, the school children. That, that really is, is the most important of those three elements, the, the, the people. And, and our people are, are our greatest asset, I think. Uh, without them, you know, we might as well shut up shop. So it's about engaging with all sorts of different people from senior university figures, distinguished visitors, right through to the people who come through the library every day, um, asking questions about 
you know, who's that woman uh, in the reading room? Is that Queen Victoria? No, it's Henrietta Rylands. And <laughs> it's a common question. Yeah, it, it, it really is what animates me and I think it animates all of my colleagues. Well, before I use my exit line about you animating this conversation, uh, I just want to finally just look at something concrete here. I collect publishers' sales catalogs. Okay. Really hard to find, mm. it seems. I thought coming to England and I've been to Norwich and Cambridge yes. and Reading, a few other places, yeah. London, not as easy as I had thought it was no. going to be. Uh, I've been doing it online, yes. of course, but yeah. I love, I, I, I'm very keen on these because they're using persuasive language to talk about the value of a book as it yes. first hits the market. Yes. you have any of those? And if well, you do, I will, uh, <laughs> how do I actually, I'm here for a few days, I want to see what you've got. Uh, if, if I didn't have this yes. podcast, yeah. would, I could just walk in and say, I'm interested in yes, publishers, sales yes. catalogs, can they see what you've got? Yes, you could. Um, there is a process to go through. Obviously, you, you have to register. We're closed access library, so you would need to talk to the staff about your research interests. They would guide you towards the catalogues. We don't have, I have to say, um, a great collection of publishers' catalogues. And I, I get the impression that uh, they were treated as ephemeral. Yeah, totally. They were know, thrown tools out. Tools of a trade. Exactly. And they were discarded. They were. Interestingly, we're sitting in front of a beautiful roll top desk, um, one of our original pieces of um, oak furniture from the 181899. We, we did move one of these desks a few years ago, and okay. we found in, in the process of moving it down the backs of some drawers, some um, early 20th century booksellers catalogues, which we have now added to our collections. But I think they were sort of the exception that proves, proves the rule that um, the library would have received trade catalogues yeah. by, by the score, but, but they were discarded once yeah. they were no longer current. Which is, an, which, as you say, is the definition of ephemera. But booksellers catalogs, not such a problem to, to access. It's mm. publishers themselves, their sales catalogs, yeah. that they would send to the booksellers yes. to try and get the booksellers to yes. buy their books. Yeah. That, but but so, even now, I mean, that's not something that we would collect. We wouldn't no, collect no, no. The, the catalogs of Cambridge University Press or Macmillan or, you know, we might receive them and, you know, once we've finished with them, they'd yeah, yeah. go in the recycling. Do your purchasing and yeah. toss them. Okay, so, so yeah. I'm Sorry not Sorry to disappoint you. It's all right. That's all right. <laughs> uh, is there anything you can add then to, we've talked about uh, what you do, uh, to some extent how you've done it, uh, why it's important, yeah. Uh, yeah. why it matters. Yeah. Uh, is there any anything else you want to add to the... That's the archive here? Well, I, I, I would just add that I've been in this library 34 years mm. now. Mm. Um, I was originally employed for three years on, on a cataloging project to do with... The, this, this was the archives of the Beals um, of Stamford. Uh, it's a National Trust property, Donna Massey, not far from here. So um, I managed to spin that project out to six years, and then somehow I sort of managed to cling on by my fingertips but I, I, I've been incredibly lucky to, to work in this library I've, I've witnessed incredible change nearly all for the better it's now a much more vibrant place than it was in the late 80s far more engagement with the collections 
but I'm still learning. And that's the joy of working in a place like this, that you, you will never know everything, that there's always something to to, to inspire and to, to educate you. And that, that's the ethos that I want to instill in my colleagues and, and anyone who visits this library. It's a learning institution. And I hope that people leave here um, knowing a little bit more and feeling a little bit more inspired. Yeah, that, that, that's really what I'm here for. And you've been telling the world about it as well. well it's been, which is part of your job too, I'm sure. Well, it's been a novel experience, but I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Likewise. Thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure. Uh, John Hodgson is the Associate Director of the University of Manchester Library. Yeah, which is, which is really... The umbrella for the for, John Ryland's Library. Understood. Yeah. Parental, it, it's just a gorgeous, as I said to start with, a yeah. cathedral of books. And anyone who's anywhere near Manchester who loves books is, has to come here. It's, it's such a wonderful, wonderful experience. Please do. Thanks again. Thank you. My pleasure.